have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me fill you in on a few things. Like first and foremost, it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Then Anchor is going to distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on multiple platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so many more. Even better, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And it's so easy, even somebody like me can do it. Now download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And I know you hear me. Are you interested in being a voice actor? Or are you already a voice actor wanting to level up your career? Then my voiceover coach can help. Elise Bowman and I have been working together and she has helped me take my game to the next level and find a whole new confidence behind the microphone. Go to EliseCoaches.com. That's E-L-I-S-E Coaches.com. She's a results-driven voiceover coach who works with you whether you are completely new to voiceover or you're a seasoned professional. She focuses on three areas. The craft of acting, the technical side, so she'll help you set up a home studio and you're going to be surprised at how inexpensive that can be, and the business side. You'll learn how to get a demo produced, how to submit to agents, and how to market yourself. The most fun part of it for me has not only been finding that new confidence, but also finding new things I can bring to characters for animation and video games. And like I said, just go to EliseCoaches.com. That's E-L-I-S-E coaches.com. And remember, I know you hear me, and I want to hear from you. So let me know if you have any questions about my experience with Elise. Remember to connect with me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at the Flynn Hendricks. All right, we are back again for week 11 on the I Know You Hear Me podcast. Man, we're coming up on three months now, and this just, it blows my mind that I've been able to keep this thing going, that you guys are actually tuning in and listening. You're giving great feedback on the episodes. You're loving the guests. I want to thank our sponsors for all they do. And if you're just now joining us, go ahead and subscribe. Get it on your platform, whether it's Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and get caught up in the archives. We've had some awesome guests on like Stephanie Nadolny, Chris Michaels, Rick Robertson, Xavier Mustafa, a.k.a. Eddie Brown. There's so many that, man, you just got to go back and listen to them all. And if you like it, do me a favor and subscribe. Give a five-star review and share it with your friends. And man, on top of that, I just got to give a huge shout-out and thank you to our sponsors that are tuning in and helping us out every week. Really appreciate you guys for all that. On the show today, I'm going to have a very, very, very great friend of mine. I've known this guy since about 2012, 2013. We met on an independent wrestling show right outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the thing that bonded our friendship that we're going to get into was our love of the movie Orgasmo. On the line, I've got Lucas Kaler, and Lucas, man, I am so glad to have you on this week. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, you know, it's always good when someone wants to give me attention. I, I soak it up. You know, photosynthesis style, and I'm, I'm kidding. It all goes no, to that luscious fro. I think this is going to be fun. I'm glad you, glad you considered me for this. I mean, definitely a lot to talk about. And, Absolutely. And a lot, 
to reminisce on. You know, we don't get the chance to to speak over the phone as often. So no, we don't. And I think that's that's one of those things I've got to get better about myself. I'm just a guilty of. I'd rather just text and you know, but I've got to get better about actually talking to people because once we do, man, we could sit on the phone for and we've done it. We could sit on the phone for up to two hours and just talk about you know whatever. I'm glad to have you on because. <laughs> We're going to get into this yeah, in the that, episode. Like you are a huge motivation and inspiration for me because you have pushed and clawed and fought and you are living your dream now. And we were even talking about that before we started rolling here, man. Like I can't wait for people to hear your story and just, yeah. man, they're going to take something away that's going to motivate them. And I can't wait to share it with everybody. Isn't that ironic, though, the whole motivation thing? I mean, I never genuinely, realistically expected to actually be a motivator for people. That was always just something I, you know, did in the wrestling business as a joke. I never really thought that, like, on a personal level, anybody would be motivated by what I do. So, but it's weird because I hear that a lot more now. As time goes on, I hear a whole lot from people that I've motivated them to do something. I mean, there was the point a few years ago where I was really, really trying to train for marathons. And then I had people tell me that I, I motivated them to do the same. And I've motivated friends of mine to go to college, go back to college, even though I never finished it. So to hear that is, is really strange, you know, to come from a point where you're, you're playing a character that's supposed to be like a parody of what the idea of a role model is to go from that mm-hmm. to people actually being inspired by the things you do is such a bizarre feeling. Right. And it's funny how, I guess, in a way, art mirrors life and vice versa. But man, like even going back to what you just said right there, I forgot about you training for the marathons at that point. And that's still something that I've got to get my my (laughs) big ass in shape to do at some point. But yeah, dude, it's insane because like you just you get around so many people you just like you get accustomed to them going through the motions or going through the norms that when somebody kind of breaks out of that mold and moves to another yeah. state and starts like starts putting feet to pavement and getting that hustle in man it's a uh, it's something you pay attention to well and it, it sucks too about the marathon training because i had gotten to we were how we were about six six weeks out from the indianapolis mini marathon the one we have here in may every year mm-hmm and it got canceled for obvious reasons last year. So the day that I was supposed to run the half marathon, the local grocery store had eight piece fried chicken on sale for three ninety nine. <laughs> so like, I can remember just gorging on fried chicken, being depressed all day. Whew. It sucked. It really was really terrible. Obviously, I want to get back into doing that too. Uh, it's just hard now because. I live, I live downtown in a major city, and we've had so many road closures and pedestrians being hit by cars has been a huge problem this summer and fall. So it's not as easy. You know, when I lived in the suburbs, when I first moved to Indianapolis, when I, when I lived in the suburbs, we had a walking trail at the apartment complex. And because of my work schedule, I would train in the middle of the night. I would go out and Woo. from like 2 to 4.30 in the morning, every morning. It would just be Dude. running and doing exercises, and and that was before the gym would open. Then the gym would open, and I would use my card to get in the gym and do more. So I was working really hard at it. I started by practicing doing like a half mile a day. Then I worked up to one mile, then two, then three. You know, so I was I was working really really hard at it. <clears throat> I'd gotten down to probably the best shape of my life. Like it was one of the most rewarding things 
in the world and then oh yeah everything gets shut down and it just kind of fell by the wayside but it's it's still a goal yeah my cardio is so bad now that if i started training now i would probably be ready by the time may comes around it would damn near kill me probably <laughs> right right so i i don't know uh how i'm gonna gonna work toward it but it's still it's still a goal. It's still something I want to try to do. But, you know, I have a lot of goals. I have a lot of things. I think that's healthy, right? Yeah. That as long as you don't let it run you into the ground. Something to always work towards, no matter if it's big or small, as long as it's something that just makes them feel good about themselves. Once you switch into the mindset that your dreams, your goals are within reach, that things are possible, those dreams, those goals change based on your your newfound comfort level and i may as well talk about what i what i do for a living i work in the uh, the racing industry in a multitude of roles media both on air and off air videography photography i help marketing i uh work on the racetrack with the safety team all this stuff and my original goal when i was you know 13 years old all the way up until about 5 years ago was to be you know, the main play-by-play guy for one of the major racing series, you know, NASCAR, IndyCar, something like that. Mm -hmm. Because I think everybody wants to be like the wrestling equivalent, you know, would be like everybody wants to be Jim Ross. Right, right. right. The voice of the generation. So you get into the industry that you love so much, and then you realize like carrying a three-hour to four-hour live broadcast would be so far out of my comfort zone. Ooh, buddy. Um that I would never in a million years actually want to do it. I would hate it, right? Yeah. Some people are cut out for that and some people aren't. You kind of start to shift your goals and dreams and you have like, if somebody offered me the position of doing play-by-play commentary as opposed to sideline reporting or pit reporting as we call it, which I have been doing, mm-hmm. um, if, somebody was, if somebody were to offer me a lead play-by-play role, I would take it and give it a shot. And I would do my best at it. But I wouldn't be heartbroken if it didn't work work out. And it's definitely something I would I would love to try at least once just to say I made that happen. You know, yeah. That six-year-old me would, would be thrilled to know he grew up to do it. But it changes. Your idea of a successful effort changes based on your goals and your motivation. And I think that's something a lot of people don't understand, especially people that don't really feel motivated to go after their goals or they think it's going to be too hard or too tall of a mountain. I was reading... Um, I don't want to say which news website it was, but because it's kind of a trash one. But I was reading <laughs> um, box office numbers, like the the dollar amounts and stuff from over the weekend. Yeah, my brother, uh, he's a manager at a movie theater, and so I'm loosely interested in in the movie business, not enough to get involved in it. But uh, I was reading box office results from the weekend, and it was talking about a movie. I think it was the it was the musical, the Dear Evan Hansen about the two kids. Yeah, which this movie does not sound in any way interesting to me. It, it honestly sounds pretty terrible. But the headline was something to the effect of Dear Evan Hansen gets crushed by Shang Chi. In the article, it talked about what a failure and what a disappointment this movie is. And I'm like, well, the the producers of this, the people who were involved in getting this from the script development process. And I'm, t- I'm going back to when this was a stage show, from the script development process all the way up to release day for being a major motion picture. How's any of that a failure? Right. Just because the general public doesn't enjoy it, right? Just because a subjective amount 
just because of a, a collective number of people's subjective opinion, uh, how's that a failure? It made I it mean, to the movies. Like people make fun of <laughs> Rob Schneider. People <laughs> make fun of Rob Schneider, and he's doing well for himself. He's made a whole lot of money, and he raised a daughter that's a pop star. You know, yeah. how's any of that a failure? You know, like he's doing just fine for himself. He's okay. Yeah. You know, sure, he's not the biggest movie star in the world, but who is anymore? Right. And that's the thing, so too. There's a lot I will more. I understand the mentality of people. I, I'm right there well, with the you. The mentality of people who have never, yeah, they've never taken a risk, and they think that because something wasn't the biggest, longest lasting number one hit, that that automatically makes it a failure. Right. If it met the goals of the people that made it, then it was a success for them, and that's that's all that should matter. Bingo. Especially in movies. Movie studios have projections. You know, it's the same as working in the television business, the little bit that I have. Television networks have projections, and if your show at least meets or exceeds the ratings expectations, you're, you're fine. Yeah. Not everything on television is going to be the next Seinfeld. Like, I compare it to, and this is a, this is a piece of advice that I give a lot of the younger people I work with. Mm-hmm. Because it's weird now. I'll be 27 in a few weeks, and it's weird. It's weird to be at an age where you're giving advice. Right. <laughs> there are there are people now look up at me and ask me for advice on things, and I'm like, I have like in my mind, I'm still a 19 year old kid who's clueless, you know. Yep, I, I can um, relate. So it's weird how that changes. But one of the pieces of advice that I give to kids is don't try to be one of those players in baseball that goes out and swings for the fences every single time. Sometimes opportunity presents itself and it's a nice slow moving fat fastball and you can hit it. You get, sometimes you just have to get on base. You yeah. Know, sometimes a single is good enough and that can win you the game. And so I always, always try to tell people, you know, don't try harder than you think you have to, you know, don't phone it in for sure. Absolutely. Give it your best. But understand your limitations and understand that sometimes you are trying too hard. Well, like sometimes in baseball, there are players, you know, like, and I'm going to date myself here, but Mark McGuire or Barry Bonds or someone like that who seemingly every time they stepped up to the plate, it was a home run. But then there are guys who had, you know, 30-year career. Ricky Henderson's a good example. I think he still holds the record for the oldest professional baseball player in the history of the sport. And I think he was like 50, 50 or 51 when he retired. And he continued, Ricky Henderson continued to play baseball semi-professionally or even in rec leagues until he was in his 60s. There's a, a wonderful audio documentary on him called Ricky Won't Quit or Ricky Henderson Just Won't Quit or something like that. It's produced by ESPN if you want to find it. Okay. It's an amazing story of this guy that he was never the greatest at what he did, but his love for the game and his determination was why he had that longevity, was why he was around for so long. Because he would work hard. He would get you the, the best result that he possibly could. It's uh, it's consistency. It's consistency over everything else, man. I was going to back it up a little bit now because I love where all this is going, but I want to know... More about what guided a young Lucas into wrestling and where all these these things you started picking up on kind of started, you know, like forming in your brain and where the seeds got planted. If it was the wrestling experience, if it was other things outside of there, because I know there are some sure. things that we're going to cover there. I want to know, like, where all this formed, because that's very intelligent, very mature, like wise words of advice that you wouldn't even hear from people twice our age at this point, it seems like. 
So I'm, I'm just interested to find out more about what started this entire process for you. So first of all, I, I feel like my, my career, I feel like it's like a fork. There are three prongs on it. There's the wrestling, there's the media stuff that's unrelated to anything else I do. And then there's, there's the racing and they, they all kind of grow from the same place. They're branches on the same tree. And I'm definitely not, I'm not saying this in a way that implies my parents were bad parents growing up. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite. I had a pretty good childhood. I was kind of sort of raised by the television. Yeah. <laughs> my parents thought that it was a good idea to leave a TV with cable wired to it in our bedroom, my brother and I, mm-hmm. uh, as little kids. So when everybody goes to bed, especially at the age when I wasn't old enough yet to be in preschool, but my brother was in school, I would turn on the TV, turn the volume down way low and just watch television all night, all friggin' night. And I, I sort of had this fascination, whether I knew this is what it was or not, with live TV. Everything I wanted to watch had to be live or at least feel like it. Late at night, I would watch, you know, the Weather Channel or CNN or uh, ESPN, because mm-hmm. back in those days, the overnight sports center broadcasts were live until like three in the morning. I think even still now, the West Coast Sports Center desk is live until that time. But I would I would stay up all night watching whatever I could find that felt like it was live. And I don't know, subconsciously, I think it's because I was a lonely kid and I was looking for company. Again, not anything my parents did wrong, but as I get older, I still feel that sometimes. So I would, especially if like one of the syndicated wrestling shows like WCW Worldwide was on late at night. Yeah. I would fixate on it because this is it, it. There's a live audience, you know. Even even though I know, even at that age, there's not a crowd of people gathered around at two thirty in the morning to watch a wrestling show. Even though I know that, the, there's still that connection that like it feels live. So a lot of sports I would be drawn to. I liked baseball a lot as a little kid. I liked basketball a lot as a little kid. Basketball I never never grew up to watch. I was born in 1994, right? Mm-hmm. Had I been born at any point before that, I probably would not have ever known what what racing was. The only reason my dad became a big racing fan was because of the baseball strike three months before I was born. Funny how that timed out, but I think it helped. You know, I would watch racing on TV with my dad, and then on certain Sundays, it was usually Sundays or Saturdays, my grandfather would come over, my dad's dad, and we would watch either NASCAR races if they were on TV or... If it was like a wrestling show, the night of a wrestling pay-per-view, we would watch that. So I remember my grandfather coming over, and we would watch, again, WCW Worldwide or WWF Superstars, you know, those Sunday morning shows. Mm -hmm. And it it was something that I I started to really enjoy because my, my dad wasn't interested in watching cartoons with me, but he would watch racing with me or wrestling. I think that's where it started. And then the love of just media in general wanting to work in television came from, I mean, who isn't fascinated with how it works? You know, everybody watches so much TV, but we don't know until we learn about it. We don't actually know what goes into making it. Absolutely true. You know, it's kind of like, you know, wouldn't you like to know how the food is made at Applebee's? You know, like you go to, (laughs) at least I used to go to Applebee's so often. I never knew what was in those $1 margaritas, but I sure would like to know. And it's the same thing with with media. Like, media shapes so much of who we are. 
Like, Very true. We, as humans, we have evolved 150 years ago. A person's taste and entertainment didn't matter. It wasn't part of their personality. Most people 150 years ago would only hear actual music performed maybe a couple of times in their life, right? Right. So their idea of it was very primitive, very basic. But now, like, our tastes and entertainment shape so much of our personality and so much of who we are. Every one of us today has T-shirts with our favorite something on it our favorite logo of a a band or a tv show we're all walking billboards for the shit that entertains us yep and so when it gets to that level of fascination when popular culture gets to that level who wouldn't be fascinated by how it works right yeah i think that we'd be doing ourselves a disservice by not at least trying to learn how it works right yeah and this isn't me making a political statement or anything but the people that cry about <laughs> fake news and stuff like that, which kills me because I was a journalism major, they have, like, the, the, that guy that got arrested for harassing the, the MSNBC reporter on the beach mm-hmm. during Hurricane Ida a few weeks ago, that guy has such little understanding of how news actually works. And it's like, that lack of an understanding is why you're so frustrated with it. Yep. Because you have... No idea what goes into producing a newscast or providing the public with information. And I'm not saying, you know, we all, every one of us that is a that, that thinks that we're objective, we're not. And I don't care if it's something as small as, oh, I think this would be a better, better B-roll shot than this. That is personal agenda at play. So I'm not saying, you know, that stuff doesn't exist in media. But to act like the media is this big four-headed dragon cabal of people who are hell-bent on ruling the world uh, is laughable. I used to have a friend who would, would joke about how when I worked at the college newspaper, we should have been allowed to put pictures of our cars beside our news stories so that people see how broke we all are, how crappy our cars are. <laughs> because odds are we're broke. There's a ton of more than you know reporters who are on, working on television who either qualify for or could qualify for food stamps. We're not this consortium of the wealthy elites or anything, but hey, not to go on that soapbox too far. But my, my point was, if you want to know how these things are created, that information is out there. Yep. And it's interesting, so go find it. You want to know how the news is produced? CNN gives tours. Go to Atlanta, go to CNN, ask for a tour. They'll take you around the studios. They'll show you how it's done. Very true. I mean, it's, 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 it's really simple. I mean, it, we have access to more information now than we ever have. Why don't we use it? That, know? It, it use seems it like learn. the more we gain access to, the more what we regress. Yep. I wonder though, like, do you think it's like lack of like a short attention sure. span? I have a I have a friend uh, several years ago, and I mean, I was I was nineteen when I had this conversation, so I've matured a lot since saying this. But I had a friend a long time ago. I used to I used to do this thing with people where I would ask them in as few words as possible to sum up what they think of me back when I cared about that. And one of the words he used was um, pensive, which I had no idea what that meant. I asked him, I said, what the hell does that mean? You're going to have to explain that. And he was like, oh, well, you know, and then he did, you know, somebody that's always deep in thought. And I felt kind of embarrassed because I was like, how do I not know the meaning of a word that so succinctly describes me, right? Right. Like, you would think you would know a word that is 
that is the best one word summary of who you are. And he and I talked about how we, we all reach an age where we think or we act like, well, I don't need to know any more about a certain subject because my knowledge of it or lack thereof has no bearing upon my life, right? Mm-hmm. So if you are, like, let's say you're, you're 46 years old, you're a construction worker, and all of a sudden you get remarried to a woman who owns a restaurant. You're resistant to learning how she runs her restaurant because that doesn't affect you. That never has affected you in the past. So why should you learn about it now? What, what good is it going to do now at this age? I think that's all it really is. I mean, we grew up, and this was nothing we did wrong, but as a generation and maybe generations before, we grew up trusting things at face value until we were told not to. When you're seven years old and you're on the school computer in the library unsupervised for the first time and you see a banner ad that says, like, you're the winner, click here. You know, I can remember this this kid, like, writing down all of his family's personal information because he was going to resubmit it to this website that he had won. He supposedly won a contest from. Oh no. And the teacher had to explain to him. She was like, Jordan, that's a banner ad. You know, that's just a banner ad that's spam. And this kid was so embarrassed. I thought he was going to cry that he fell for, that he fell for a banner ad that he fell for spam. And it's like, well, you're eight years old. You don't know better. You know, (laughs) you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I, I think, as a generation, like we, there came a point at a really early age for all of us where suddenly everything on the internet is fake and everything on TV is real, right? Yep. You know what's, you know what's scripted and what isn't. Like, we all have the wrestling isn't real talk with our parents at a certain age, and it either makes us not want to watch wrestling anymore or it makes us more interested because now we know we can be, we can be totally creative. Yeah. Uh, I think that is where the roots lie in a lot of people's distrust in media. Odds are, if they're the kind of person who swore off wrestling when they found out it was scripted, they're the same person that's going to get upset because they they saw a meme that said CNN was fake. Odds are, same person. I can Um, believe that. So, and I'm not condemning anybody for that. I'm I'm not condemning anybody for believing or listening to the news sources that they think are the most credible. But I, I am saying that I, I do think a distrust for certain sources, I, I absolutely do think that it, it it has its roots in what we were led to believe was true as children. I knew Santa Claus, I never, never believed Santa Claus was real. However, what am I, why am I going to kill somebody's fun? You know? Right, right. That's, <laughs> that's the biggest part of it right there. If the other kids want to think he's real, then that. Don't yeah. don't jade somebody else, so, you know, just let it be. Yeah. I think that too is a big reason when we talk about splintering off why I wanted to get into wrestling. When I got into the wrestling business, I was 17, mm-hmm. and I was a I was a pretty jaded kid. So, uh this will be 11 years ago next month. I actually had to drop out of high school when I was in the, in the 10th grade. I don't think I knew you had to drop out. Yeah. I don't talk about it very often just because it's it's not important anymore. Yeah, so there were two things going on. One was the summer before I had started to show symptoms of bipolar disorder and had no idea what was going on. Like, all I knew was it felt like the world was ending at every turn. But then everybody that I would talk to would say, oh, that's just how kids are. You're 16. 
kids are anxious, kids are this, and, and I'm thinking, no, this is like a level of crippling fear and anxiety that's uh, a little more than, you know, me just being a jaded kid. And then the other was the school I was going to was falling apart. They were having administration issues. They would actually close up at the end of that next year. There were a lot of issues with the school I was going to, and I had started to notice. Yeah, I had started to notice that and had some clashes with management and the teachers over the fact that I felt like they were not prioritizing our education, which they weren't. Uh, they were far more worried about getting more and more funding from the state. They wanted to be this this experimental, they called it project-based learning thing. The teacher that ran the program had had such a hard-on for high-tech high out in California, this uh, high school that's in Silicon Valley, and he wanted us to be like East Coast version of it. A as things got worse, he was more interested in parading like documentarians and magazine crews through the school to document us than he was actually making sure we were well-educated and okay you know, here I was a kid going through some serious mental health issues, and it was being written off at every turn. And finally, I had a breakdown around Halloween of that year that just, that was it. I was done. Um, spent like a week in a mental hospital. And oh, God. It was funny because I still, I still maintain that I didn't really need to be in the mental hospital. The last day that I ever went to high school... A friend messaged me and said, hey, are you coming in today? And my response was, I would rather hang myself with a belt than come to school. <laughs> Which wow. is total, you know, melodramatic teenager bullshit. Yeah. Right? Like, nobody's that's... ever, kids aren't students when they say that. However, the wrong person saw that text message and freaked out. Oh, no. So, spent a week in a mental hospital. And when I got out, it had been determined that I was on track to fail the grade anyway. So, uh, I was like, Fuck it, I'll drop out. And sorry, by the way, the the, the language is just kind of flowing freely. Oh, I'm not meaning to be. You're fine, man. Profane. No, it's you're just, fine. You know, me, you know how I talk. Let it let it come as it comes, man. But it's, it's it's an awkward story to tell. Then it goes into this period of my life where it was so dark and so sad. And ask if you if you come across anybody else doing this show that had to drop out of high school, they'll probably tell you the same thing. You become a social pariah when you're a high school dropout, nobody your age wants to have anything to do with you. Nobody you went to school with. And then anybody else you do meet that's 16 thinks you're weird or strange or, or whatever else. So I genuinely do not remember the next almost six months of my life. After that, I remember Christmas and I remember a trip to Charlotte, North Carolina in February. Other than that, I do not remember the six months after I dropped out of high school. Wow. I do know people rarely called, and when they did, when friends would call or text, it would be this very sad, sympathetic, well, I hope you're doing okay, you know. And so you go on and you, you're watching all of your friends go through these rites of passage without you. Everybody getting their first car, getting their driver's license, uh, prom, all this other stuff. You're watching it all unfold it's almost like being behind glass right so you put yourself in situations where you're 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 trying really hard to still be a kid i got my ged like two weeks after i dropped out so it wasn't like i dropped out to sit around and do nothing and i tried to stay busy i helped my mom with her business and, and did other stuff but you're you're watching your friends grow up without you and it, it's these people that you know for what you know as your life the eight years you've been self-aware you're watching these people that you know 
as your world be so apathetic about your existence. You go from doing everything on the weekends together to now nobody wants to come around. I mean, you're even like, I can remember, and I'm, I'm by no means am I a religious person, but I started going to different churches with, with kids that I knew just to have a place to be like forced to hang out with other kids. And it becomes a very lonely period where you, you start oh, to yeah. become extremely angry, right? Mm-hmm. You, you start to carry this bitterness about the situation that if you don't want me around, then then fine. I'll find people who do. So when I, when I dropped out of high school, wrestling was so far off my radar. I made fun of it on a semi-frequent basis, but otherwise I had no idea who was around. Like I could have probably guessed John Cena was still the top guy, which he was. Yeah. But for the most part... I knew nothing of, of wrestling anymore. I hadn't watched it since summer of 07, and not for the reason most people would give on that. Um, it was not because of the Benoit thing. It was actually a month earlier with the Vince McMahon limo explosion. Oh, I thought that was so stupid yeah. and insulting to everybody's intelligence. As right up there with him wrestling God. Um, yeah, that yeah, the wrestling God thing. I, I thought it had become so cartoonishly stupid. I had I grew out of it for a while. So it was it was the spring and summer of 2011. Uh, WrestleMania came through Atlanta. I didn't go, but I worked. I was actually an intern uh, at a radio station, the same radio station where Amy Dumas, formerly known as Lita, actually had a show on Sunday nights. Oh, really? So from time to time, I would do some editing work on her show, put promos together. Nice. Down the episodes, yeah. And so because because of that connection. I kind of started to watch again because I was like, well, you know, she used to be a wrestler. That's really cool. I never met Amy. She would leave notes sometimes about how the editing process was going, but I never actually got to talk with her or meet her. But I, I would sometimes do work on her our program in post-production. So, yeah, I started watching again because of that. And it was probably June or July of, of 2011. As CM Punk started using Cult of Personality by Living Color as his entrance music, yep. which was like... One of my favorite songs as a kid, but I hadn't heard it in years until he starts using it. And then I hear the words of this song and it's like, I, I see this, I see this guy on TV who he's in this anti-authority angle. He's, he's saying the things, even though it's a work, even though it's a character, he's saying the things to his authority figure that I wish I could have said to mine. And it resonated with me on such a deep level that I was, I was back into it again. I get it. I get it. And then I got my brother back in. Getting my brother back into it was tough. He was disinterested, and I was like, well, we can watch it and make fun of it, which is always the way to get him to, <laughs> to get into something. <laughs> and so um, we'll watch that episode of Raw, and then that turned into, well, I mean, SmackDown's on Friday if you want to watch, you know. And by the end of September of that year, we were – our DVR was just full of wrestling. Every wrestling show we could find on cable. We were even watch, we were even watching Pro Wrestling Ohio out of out of um, Columbus, Ohio, wow. on a local channel. So any and everything we could get our hands on, we could. And I became so enthralled with wrestling because it was the perfect escape. It was you know the all of the emotions of a soap opera plus you got these characters that were larger than life that you wanted to aspire to be like. Well, not to mention, you know, 
you've got all the lights and the attention and the screaming crowds. I mean, it's it's not hard to sit there and, and fantasize about being Chris Jericho sometimes, right? Yeah, very true. Like, when you're a 16-year-old kid sitting at home alone, you know, it, it's very intoxicating to imagine thousands of people chanting your name. So we get into 2012, and that was a weird, weird period because my brother and I had moved into a house next door. Um, the house next door came available, and my parents bought it. They were going to fix it up to, to resell, but in the process of doing that, we were allowed to live there. So we had a, we had attracted a couple of roommates, as teenagers do. You know, you're 18 and 20 years old. Your friends are going to come over and never leave once they realize you're never going to kick them out. All of a sudden, it went from me being this lonely kid watching wrestling in the basement to myself, my brother, and two of our friends every Monday, every Thursday, every Friday, like sometimes four or five nights a week, there's a half dozen of us crowded in the living room watching wrestling. So then we, then I, I spent a summer in Charlotte, North Carolina. My dad had an assignment for his job mm-hmm. that required him to be in Charlotte for the entire summer. So I, I wanted to get away from my hometown for a bit. Charlotte, North Carolina is where NASCAR is based and where most of the race teams are that are in NASCAR. So I got excited because, hey, I get to get away from from Chattanooga for a while. I'm not too far from home, but I'm close to the racing business. So that trip inspired me to do something big with my life because – you get to see these multi-million dollar operations. You get yeah. to go to all these different races. And all of a sudden now this thing you've only ever seen on TV feels like it's 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 tangible for the first time. Yeah, and I get it. And now that it's tangible, you know you, you can go and do it. You can have a life doing it. Problem was I had to come back to Chattanooga. So I get back to Chattanooga, and it was a very wheel-spinning type of feeling. What do we do? You know, mm-hmm. my brother and I both asking ourselves that. So... We were poking around online trying to find wrestling shows to go to because it was the middle of summer and we just wanted stuff to go and do. Yeah. So that's where we found uh, Empire, actually. And I, I don't remember. My brother claims it was a show advertising Adam Pierce versus Sean Tempers. I know Adam. I never saw Adam Pierce at that show. My, my brother always jokes about it. He has he jokingly has a grudge against Adam Pierce for not being there because uh, that was to to this day the only time either one of us could have ever seen the NWA title in person because oh, he was man. champion. I don't care about it, <laughs> but Zach kind of holds a grudge over it. Uh, it's funny. Um, I should I should hold a grudge too I mean, because it's a belt, you know yeah. It's, it's what it is. I was actually supposed um, to work him for it at one point around that same time up in Nashville, but you know it, it never happened because something fell through with the promoter. Yeah. But man, it's funny how that that time frame right there that was. That was so that was what we were told happened too, and I would later find out this wasn't an Empire show. It was just Drew was the Drew had the building. So we go to Empire, and we go to this this show at the Empire building, and it's the first time that local wrestling doesn't look like shit. Yes, and that's it's a rare no way to say it. It is the first time that a local wrestling show looked professional. Yes, one hundred percent. So. Of course, we both wanted to be part of it somehow. So we find Drew after the show, and Drew's like, "Yeah, just um, we do we do training 
every Wednesday night. Just come by, chat with us for a bit. We'll talk. So Drew looked at both my brother and I and, and did not just see two marks that he could take advantage of. Yeah. And that's a rarity in itself, too. Uh, he saw two kids who wanted who wanted an opportunity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we, we found ourselves in a situation. We, we actually met Polly a few months earlier. Nothing oh, ever came God. from it. But, Thank and, God. Well, you know, as, as far as Paul goes, I mean, Paul's Paul. As I've gotten out of the business, I think it's so silly that people that hold a grudge against him just because of – just don't work for him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Don't don't work for him. Don't do business with him. There's a, there's a way to survive. There's definitely a way to survive by doing so. So if you like him, you like him. If you don't, you don't. But nobody's holding a gun to your head, making you have to deal with him. So true story. You know that's those that those are my feelings about the man now. You know, Ten years ago, you know, easy easy to ago, dislike. It was so cool to hate on him. I would have been in the same boat. But yeah, and he cares. he made it easy too. He made it easy. But oh, um, yeah. yeah, easy, yeah, easy. But going back to to Drew though, it was very obvious that Drew saw two kids who wanted an opportunity. Yep. And he put us to work. Uh, we were security the first few shows, and then I I heard Drew talking one night about how they needed somebody to shoot video because <clears throat> you can't promote if you're not shooting your shows. True story. That whole summer of 2012 at Empire didn't get shot. They just there were no cameras um, unless Pierce was there with his camera in the back. Otherwise, those shows did not get saved. That's right, because so, that's about the time I started there full time uh, too. I remember all I that going nerd, on. Yeah, because you, you well, you wanted me to find your first match, and I couldn't because it, it turns out it didn't exist. Yep. So yeah, we were able to talk Drew into letting us do some production stuff, do some camera work and some video promotions and. Lo and behold, he liked what we were able to do. <laughs> More importantly, I don't think he had it in him to tell us to go away. <laughs> that was the biggest part. <laughs> it was like, okay, these kids want to do this, and if it's not good, it's not like it's going to hurt my business any, so fine. That's almost what it felt like it was at first. Uh, but then we start doing really good work. Like I still say to this day, my brother, if he desired a career that – had that required so much travel he could be working on television shooting wrestling oh yeah i really do believe that he is that good my brother just knows the art of it he understands what needs to be seen and what doesn't to such a such an amazing degree thing is though he just he doesn't as far as i know he doesn't want a life where he has to travel that much but either way the more work that we started to do the more we were trusted the more responsibility we were given. And more importantly, the more everybody in the back started to be like, okay, these kids, they're not just marks. They're here to do business. Those first few shows hanging out backstage was the most intimidating experience of my life because you're back there. You've got no friends. You don't know anybody. And you know how it is with mm -hmm. wrestlers. You know, all the boys want to want to pick on who's new. Oh Yeah. And so it very quickly went from uh, me being kind of nervous and intimidated to being completely comfortable because you start to earn the respect of people like Tank and Andy and even Tempers. And, and so then from that just flows the rest of everything else. Yeah, because you see the locker room uh, leaders giving like they warm up to you so yeah, then, and then it trickles down you, from there. Yeah. 
Well, and more importantly than that, too, when you start acting like when they start listening to you, not just talking to you. Yeah. But when when you see someone like Tank put his put his hand on your knee and ask you when you're sitting on the couch together, so what'd you think? How was it? And you're like, why are you asking me what I think? Like, okay, <laughs> I thought your match was good. You know, what do you say in those situations? And but it, it's when you start to notice guys coming up and asking you what you think of their work, what you how how their match was or whatever. That's when you start to realize, okay, I'm going to be fine. Somewhere along this way, I met Lamar, and Lamar, Lamar started booking me. Lamar was a promoter in Rome, the town that would later ruin my life. <laughs> <laughs> Lamar was a promoter in Rome, Georgia. Lamar also could probably win an Art Anderson lookalike contest if he tried, which I, being also from Rome, I don't think that's coincidental. <laughs> it's in the water. It's in the water. And so Lamar started booking me. Oh, yeah. It's in the Coosa River. Lamar started booking me to ring an ounce. And to be, by this point, 18 years old, uh, to be a, still very much a kid, but also you're in that in-between period, you're becoming an adult, and now you're given a public speaking role on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're in a, a goofy thrift store suit that doesn't fit. However, to get that responsibility uh, to know, hey, I'm getting, I, I'm on the mic, that really helps the kid's confidence. It does. Well, that really helped me come out of my shell and understand that I was going to be fine. Like, I can remember a direct correlation between my overall well-being improving and me getting booked more and more often as an announcer. Like, no kidding, I can remember this, it almost felt like a rebirth at times because I was, I was confident again. I believed in myself again. Yeah. And that hadn't happened for a long time. Well, there was a moment of real satisfaction when I went to a party that was supposed to have been my graduation party. Mm-hmm. And I walk in and it's people, it's people who hadn't seen me in years that kind of wrote me off. And I step into the room and they start cheering that I'm there. Wow. That's awesome. And I was like, okay. Like, not that I wanted these people's not that I wanted these people's respect, but they popped when I came in the room. I'm doing something right. Yeah. So then I I spent the next year or so I would do announcing. I would I don't want to say that I had I, I guess now that I'm older this is what it was, but I think subconsciously I knew very early on that that wasn't going to be my life permanently that wrestling was going to be this fun thing that I did for a while Mm -hmm. because I would always be watching races on my phone backstage if they were live somewhere, or I would, I would take certain shows off. I would take a a week off from empire every year to go to NASCAR at Bristol. Yeah. I always kind of had one eye on the other side of what I liked. So over that next year, it was kind of a game of, I liked what I was doing, but what am I going to do when this is over? Like I was almost immediately thinking, how am I going to get into the racing business? So then my, my brother moved in early 2014. He, he moved to live with his wife. They had to move to where they live now at separate times, just because of the finances of it. When my brother moved, and this was right after you, you went on that first hiatus too in yeah. 2014. Yep. Right after I got married. Um, I don't want to say I was done. But that took a lot of the passion out. You'll notice, if you look back around that same time, my willingness to travel 
almost completely died. Yeah. Like, it went from me being okay with going on these eight, nine-hour car rides to, okay, well, you know, I'm not staying overnight somewhere. Yep. If we're going to go work South Georgia, for example, we better be back at home late at night. Yeah, it's that's one of those but things, too. at the same too. time, I, was, I had just started doing I had just started doing the Ryan Lazarus stuff Mm -hmm. and much my, much to my at times chagrin, the Ryan Lazarus stuff was working really well. I was getting good reactions. Promoters liked me. Promoters liked doing business with me because I was professional. I mean, Jesus, I I was a manager. I knew my place, you know? (laughs) I said, I think we, we talked just about after every show you did as well before, Because I think we got we got one show where you managed week. me, yeah, and you know, then trying to get better. Yep, and you were always looking for other ideas for how to branch that character out too, whether it was like podcasting, videos, or whatever it was, just ways to expand the yeah. the horizon for the character as well. Well, and I, I still do feel like it. I mean, it would be a bit goofy now that I'm a total grown ass man that would be doing the character, but I felt like at the time it would have been funny. And the whole premise of the character came from an idea that I had when I was like seven. I thought, wouldn't it be funny if there was a workout tape where uh, you're doing pull-ups, but for every pull-up you you get a bite of pizza. Yeah. So like you're dangling <laughs> a slice of pizza above your head, and you're just you're you're counteracting what you're doing, and that just manifested years later. But yeah, I was doing the Ryan Lazarus stuff. Then by the end of that summer, there was like a six-month period where I didn't do it anymore. I was only going to Empire because, let's face it, I had no life. <laughs> I, had, I had nothing else to do. It was it was fun. I would, after the show every week, I would go with Andy somewhere because mm-hmm. Andy doesn't live too far from from where my dad lives. So we would we would go to Applebee's or oftentimes IHOP. We would just find a twenty four hour restaurant and hang out till three four in the morning. It'd always be fun because you'd, you'd find yourself driving home at, like, sunrise. Yep. And you, you get home, you sleep about four hours, and then mom's like, okay, honey, okay, son, I made you breakfast. <laughs> so you're going through your Sunday, like, half asleep. Oh, boy. And um, Don't miss that. November of that year, it was it was the, the Thanksgiving show that we did, the one named after the Fozzie album. Anyway, Andy asked me before the show, he says, hey, get on the mic and cut a promo. And I'm like, okay. So I get on the mic and I do my shtick. And he's like, cool, you want to manage Lamar? I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Problem is, Lamar had, was was that the rotator cuff? Do you remember? I think it was, and I think that was a Lamar repeat thing for him. Lamar had a pretty brutal injury at the time. Where like, and it didn't heal properly, so it kept aggravating, if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Because this was like this was around the time Lamar had to take so much time off that we didn't know if he was coming back. Yes, yes, that's right. The idea is put in place, which I'm saying all of this because we've been out of business for so long, we're never coming back. <laughs> What's the point to keep anything secret anymore? The idea was to bring me in and have me debut sometime around Tooth and Nail, the big show for the year. Mm-hmm. I even think it, the original plan was me debuting on the pre-show. Show of the year, so we did these. We did these Thursday night shows in front of like twenty two people every week. It was three dollars attendance, or I think two for five. Anyway, I felt I felt genuinely sorry for the fans that were coming to this because there seriously there was like a, a section of about two dozen diehards that would come. I started to notice 
that the fans would leave after my segments at these B shows. Really? So they started putting me deeper in the show so people would stay. Yeah, which got on my nerves because who wants to be out at 11 o'clock on a Thursday night? Right, right. Um, but yeah, the, the, there was a section of fans, like most of them would leave. Most of them would leave when I would be done. That's the most flattering thing. Like, they're kind of, all they care about is seeing me, and once that's over, they're gone? Yeah. Like, wow, you know? That's pretty damn impressive, man. I mean, that's so, a hell of a feeling. I was so, I was so excited, so excited to get to do this. My brother scheduled time off from work to come down for Tooth and Nail. Then we find out about March that uh, Lamar's not coming back for a while. Oh. The debut's been pushed back, which is fine. Didn't hurt my feelings at all. Because remember, we brought Lamar back in July, but he I don't think he wrestled again until October. No, because that was... to bring you in. That was so when I, I came back, somebody. yeah. And he actually worked my, my new but, tag team partner that night. It was like a battle of the spine busters. Yeah. yeah. So then... Um, we get to the spring of 2015, which is the part of my life where everything really changed and never went back to normal. So as happy as I was, as excited as I was that I knew this character had legs and it was going to be something good. My mom would stay up late and wait for me to come home from shows mm-hmm. every week. It wouldn't matter if I walked in the door at 3.30 in the morning, she would be sitting there on the couch. And we would sit and talk for a little bit about how the show went all this other stuff. One night I come home and my mom's not there. Her car is gone. And I'm like, what happened? Where, where's, where's my mother? You know, there's nobody else here, but me. And that's not how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So I called her and, and she said she was in the hospital. She said Um. she went to the hospital. She wasn't feeling good and hadn't been feeling good for a couple of weeks. She just didn't say anything. And I didn't mm. think anything of it because she was trying to quit smoking at the time. Right. And I right. know trying to quit smoking will make the body do weird things, will make you sick. So I just thought, okay, you know, it, that's what's going on. So we went through this, right, the six or eight week period. Nobody could determine what the problem was. Was it a minor sickness? Was it cancer? Was it somewhere in between? We didn't know. Obviously, doing my character kind of took a back seat, but at the same time, I was still excited. <clears throat> because we were we were getting ready for what I thought was going to be a big moment in my career. I come here to Indianapolis for a race. It was the it was a Mother's Day weekend race of 2015. That was the last time things ever felt normal. Oh man! I get home from the trip. Mom had been doing a little better. Uh, I get home from the trip, and the day after I get back, she goes back into the hospital. And she stays in the hospital for three weeks where finally it it was determined that it was pancreatic cancer. Oh, no. So we're now four weeks, five weeks away from my scheduled debut, and you get the worst news of your life? Yeah. I remember a few things about about the day we we got the news. Uh, It was a Friday. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was watching TV with my dad. We were watching a NASCAR truck race. They were at Dover, Delaware, and, um, the phone rings. My dad just takes off running out the door to his car, starts driving. I'm like, well, I guess I need to follow him. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I, what I else do you do? So then we get there, we get the news and, and I go downstairs to the cafeteria, uh, the con, the commissary at the hospital. 
which like any small town hospital, it's a, it's a, it's like a subway and a little uh, drink station beside it. And so I'm sitting there eating the saddest sweet onion chicken teriyaki sub of my life, which is saying something because there's been quite a few of those. Of course, it's this big party's over feeling, right? Like every bit of joy and fun that has been a part of your life is gone. Yeah. Because now for however long that she has left, that is your life. Taking care of this person that took care of you for so long is now your life. So, you know, like I said, um, I remember going home that night. I remember not really understanding the situation. I remember people calling me, asking me if I was okay, and being so irrationally angry at other people for knowing about it before I could tell them. And it's not their fault. Right, right. Them, right. But the fact that, you know, somebody didn't have enough respect for me to to let me tell everybody was what I was mad about. I understand that. I definitely understand that. Which is such a such a weird, I mean, why, why does it matter, right? Yeah, but like, it really doesn't matter. You know, once you're out of the moment, it really doesn't yeah. matter. But when the emotions are running high, um, man, it, it's hard to, to process and... I Absolutely. I remember not sleeping that night, waking up the next day, and going to Empire, because it was Saturday. That's what I did. That was life. Mm -hmm. And I, I get to the building, and brutally, brutally ironically enough, this was the first night we were running hype vignettes for my character. So a Thursday of that week, I was excited because, oh, well, we get to um, debut my character, or at least the hype videos for it. And then you don't even care. Right. All that work and then something else. And I'm standing is... there and I, I'm in the middle of telling Drew what's going on. Well, I'm in the middle of explaining to Drew what's going on. And Andy comes up and Andy's like, oh, Lucas, you look horrible. You look like someone kicked you in the throat. And I told him what was going on. And he felt still to this day. I'm sorry that I busted his bubble so badly. And this is coming from Andy, by the way. He felt so genuinely sorry that he gave me a hug, which was the weirdest thing in the world. Right. <laughs> because Andy is not the kind of person to show emotions, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, no, he you're is, right. He is a very stoic person yes. in a good way. So for, for that was kind of awkward. And then I can remember, I went home. I didn't even stay for the show. I stayed to make sure the promo got loaded into the computer and that it was going to play. They, they did a couple of test runs with it. I was like, that's enough. I don't remember at which point I did this, but I remember going to Corey, uh, Corey Cox's house. Mm -hmm. And we sat out back. We sat out back. He had a bonfire, and he was just, well, bonfire is a loose term. He was burning trash. <laughs> <laughs> Corey and I sat in his backyard, and he said something that has stuck with me for, for years. He said, you know, I'm not saying this is going to have a happy ending, but this is going to work out the way that it needs to. This is all going to happen the way that it's designed and supposed to. And someday you'll understand what that means. And that's, man, and that's there some are times deep stuff. In the years since where I get it. And there are some times where I'm still angry about it. Uh, and that's, I think that's human nature. That's just part right. of being human. He was absolutely, he said, this is going to work out. Absolutely. So, then we go through this period where my brother moves back, and it's almost like we're trying so hard to act like 
the obvious isn't happening. We're trying so hard to pretend like mom's not sick. And it's almost like a, a cartoon parody version of a family trying to live. Imagine the Simpsons if the underlying tone of the Simpsons was that Homer has a terminal illness. It's just not funny anymore. Right. Right. Ugh, man. Like it's, no matter what you do, it's going to be heartbreaking and you know, like yeah. even the funniest lines from the show under those circumstances are going to just be pulverizingly bad. And very, that's very what true. life was for about a year. I debuted with the character at Empire on July 11th. As big of a day as that was supposed to be for me, I don't remember it. I remember the feeling after the debut promo. I remember going to the back and my knees just shaking so bad. That was probably the most nervous I had ever been about anything. I've never done anything since that made me that nervous. Wow. So then you, you start going through this you start going through this deal where your your mother has a terminal illness and you're playing a a bad guy, a heel character in a situation where you have committed to be in that venue week to week. So the the fans, the regulars get to know your character mm-hmm. because you're there every week. And you get to know them. Yep. And so playing this character went from being this went from being this fun thing that made people laugh to my only medium to show my frustration with the world. Like when I started doing the character, I was mad at kids I grew up with. So it started out as being this, oh, you want to you want to hate me? You want to see a bad guy? I'll show you a bad guy. Yep, you I get it. To, you, you think I'm annoying? I'll show you annoying. It went from that then to a heartbroken 20-year-old with no other way to express himself. Dare I say, some of the work that I did during that period was my very best, but I can't go back and watch it. Because I see in my own eyes a level of pain that I just can't I, I can't deal with. And I, I know other people don't see that when they watch those clips, but when I look back at, at work from that period, it, it all just has almost like dust that you can't take off right it's just it's got something on it that makes it too painful so then oh simultaneous to that you're going through all the normal things that a 20 year old goes through you know relationship troubles social life troubles so you've like there's somebody i was chasing around at the time that uh, i don't think had been too interested in me anymore and so there was the awkwardness of that then you, you turn 21 during this tragedy. And so I think while you have a parent suffering from a ter- terminal illness could may possibly be the worst time to turn 21 because now you can buy alcohol to deal with this problem anytime you want to. Yeah. Oh um, boy. And so you, you become very dependent upon, upon very quickly. So by the time we get to like Christmas of 2015, this young, happy kid had just devolved into an angry mess. And I I have to, and I've never said this to Drew mostly because I have, I don't know how to get in touch with the man anymore. Same Uh, here, unfortunately. But I I mean, he follows me on Twitter, but very rarely interacts. Right. I don't know how often he checks it. But first of all, Drew gave me a, a, a safe place to go every week where I was never going to be judged I was I was never going to feel like a letdown if I upset anybody. Drew Drew did a, a good job 
my brother and I both of sheltering us from how bad the business can be. Yes. And if, if we can just take a minute right there, he, he deserves a lot of credit for that because I mean, man, like people just don't understand there are, and I'm not like trying to knock something as a whole, but there are so many people out there, like going back to when you said you guys first met him and came by to talk for training. Like you said, he didn't view you as two kids that he could just, throw in there and take yeah. their money like he was a 100 percent stand-up guy if he could do something and he told you he would he would honor his word on that if he told you he couldn't he wouldn't bs you along he would 100 percent tell you i can't do that and you know like you would just respect the level of honesty and commitment that he gave you at that like he he was one of those rare people where if he gave you his word you knew his word was good one of the one of the things too if he and this happened so many times, mm-hmm. uh, if he heard me or my brother talking about somebody in the business that he didn't think we should deal with, he would tell us, "You don't yep. want to work for that person. You don't want to work with that person." He would he would give advice on how to be professional, how to look out for yourself, how to stand up for yourself. He told a lot of cautionary stories, and I, again, I can't say this enough. He he helped shelter us from the types of promoters that would take advantage of you in one way or another. I mean, there's, you know, and you know who I'm talking about when I say this, there, there were some guys that would take advantage of, of his young workers in more ways than one. Yep. He made sure that we didn't get exposed to those types of people. Right. And that's, I mean, that says a lot about um, the quality of his character right there, too. That says a lot about him. I, I think, too, you know, for somebody at the stage in life that I was in, I mean, I was, I was 20, 21 years old. I didn't know anything. I, I had no idea how things worked. I still don't know how things work today. I still find myself in situations where I ask myself, who do I trust? And he acted almost like a filter making sure that we didn't get too close to the people he didn't think were trustworthy. Right. And I, I don't know what I would have done without somebody like that in my life. And that, I mean, dude, that says a lot you know, about like, having that father figure mentor there. So again, I could, I could tell you so many things like along oh, yeah. the same lines about drew, but this ain't about me. So, I mean, I'm just, I like, I'm, I'm sitting here smiling right now. Just, hearing you know being reminded again of how quality of a human being he is yep if that industry were full of more people like him i would have wanted to say absolutely same here same here i'll explain why i got out in a minute but we get the news in january that we're closing i had already decided i was going to take a break after march anyway yep i don't know why i circled this i circled the specific date back at Christmas and said, I'm going to take some time away from the wrestling business. I want to be, I want to know what it's like to be a normal 20 something. We get the news about a week or two later, we're going out of business. The original plan was we were going to close for a while, restructure and come back and do spot shows. Yep. I remember that realistically, especially at that time, that wasn't possible. I mean, spot shows may be a thing you could do today. Yeah. With, if you have the right streaming partner, someone like Fight or IWTV or someone like that. But in, in 2016, you were dead if you didn't have a home. Very true. I let myself be booked into a hair match. 
which would have been my third. I was so happy to have that damn afro cut. <laughs> and it was a luscious was one, too. Done. Thrilled, honestly, to have that afro cut. It had gotten to be so long and so cumbersome. We do, and it was it was a silly feud that we actually managed to get some money out of. It was me and Lamar versus Bane Lynch. Bane Lynch's character was, uh, he got hit in the head and basically oh, became yeah. like a man-child. Yeah, it was like the St. Elsewhere kid style. Because he'd come out with the hospital gown, and I actually know how he got access to those. Somebody, somebody they knew worked at the hospital. <laughs> and ended up with some, whether they... Who knows the means by which they obtained them? But, Allegedly, because I asked one time, I said that can't be the same. That can't be the same gown every week, right? Or could it? And again, I don't even know if that's actually the story, but I'm putting two and two together and saying that allegedly it's possible. It's wrestling, so it's very, it's very but, highly know, it was, probable. It was me and Lamar versus Bane. How many? How many guys that do the solid white towel gimmick have stolen those from hotel rooms over the years? So yeah. True. <laughs> Bane had a teddy bear that he could talk to. And the teddy bear was named Muji. Yes. Which was, yes, it was half a reference to a comedian half a reference to a comedian named Muji Burr, who used to appear on David Letterman a lot. And half a reference to a friend of Andy's in real life that they call Muji. So Muji Bear was the teddy bear. Mm-hmm. And so we did this really neat story where I got tired of Bane being immature, and I cut his ear off, the, the teddy bear, I mean. And I kept the ear on a necklace for, like, six months, which got great heat, by the way. I'd take it off and, like, hold it up to people. It was funny. So this this goofy story that we had, people were into it, and it got pushed to the semi-main for the our last show. And here I was thinking it would be, like, on the pre-show at best because it's a comedy match. But this thing, to, to Bane's credit... Because Bane was the babyface, and the, the babyface works just as hard as the heel does. Yep. Uh, just in a different way. Uh, Bane helped make that make that thing money. You know, Bane helped make that story good. I was doing the best work that I could, but there was a lot going on, and I don't remember too much of the last few weeks of Empire. I'm, I'm piecing it together. I, I'll have to dig it up. One thing I do remember was a was a selfie that I took. I'm in the passenger seat of my, my own car and I'm holding up a, a bottle of uh, liquor. I think it was uh, Captain Morgan. That tells you where I was emotionally at the time. I was hammered drunk for like weeks up to the last show. Mm-hmm. I was working on the company retrospective video. I remember that video too. Uh, the one that made everybody cry. Yep. I finished that at 3.30 in the afternoon on Friday. The day before the last show, and then mom dies at like 5.15 that afternoon. Oh, man. So, it's the day before, like, this thing that got me through my teenage years, this thing that helped me find myself and bring me into my 20s, is going away, and oh, by the way, mom dies the day before. I can't even imagine, man. So, of course, you don't, you don't know what to do with yourself, because you were already going to treat that last show like the end of a certain point of your life. Because as far as I was concerned, I was done with the character after that. Like I was going to wake up on Sunday morning and erase all of the social media for the character. And and it was going to be over. And then you've got bigger things to worry about. I wanted to be done with the business because I was waking up every Saturday morning 
I was having to throw up before getting in the car to go to a show. That's how sick of the of, of it that I was. I was so tired of giving so much of myself every week and being stuck in this situation. You know, you, you come home and the one person you want to talk to about it is too sick. Yep. To to carry a conversation anymore. That's what sucks. That that's what hurts the most about it. And so I can remember we still had to go to the building that night to set things up because despite what happened at home, we've got to go make money that next day. So plus our, our dad didn't want us taking care of any of the funeral stuff. He, he knew it would be too much for us. Yeah. Which he was right. So we took your dad and the rest of the family took care of all that while we were distracted for the weekend, which was, which was better. Probably we went and helped set up at the building. And I can remember somebody that I was chasing around at the time. It doesn't even matter anymore who it was, but I, I was I was talking, I was texting with someone, and I was on that. Na- I was sitting on that nasty couch backstage. Nobody, that couch was never cleaned, and it was so gross. But I was sitting on that couch, and I was thinking to myself, as filthy as this building is, I never want to leave this room. Like, if I can just live in this moment. The the comfort and the, the beauty of all the sadness, just the mix of emotions. I remember really wishing that, that I could have just stayed in that moment forever. Because as heartbroken as I was, I was there with people that cared about me. It still felt like home. You know, Drew and Susan and yeah. Andy was there, Clint was there, Corey was there. Like all the people, all the people that mattered to me at that time in my life were were there. And then we had to go home. I remember telling my brother, I said, Zach, there's no way I can make it through tonight without vodka. So we, and I cannot believe this is true. He took me to Taco Bell. I got two extra large Fertista freezes, a bottle of vodka. And I went home with my brother and we got drunk watching Intervention on a That's how we got through that first night. Oh, man. Getting drunk watching intervention is a paradox. Yes. By the way, That's yes, the strangest feeling you'll ever have because you're like, I'm doing something these people need help for. Wake up the next day, I get in the car, and this was this was like something out of a movie. The, the first song playing on the radio was "Landslide" by Stevie Nicks. Oh, and no. I was like, Oh my god, this is like I couldn't even cry. I was like, This is this is cartoonishly bad. Like this is so, this is so outrageously brutal that all I could do is laugh. Right. I mean, because I've been through, I had been through so much in the, in the year before that. And I was like, you get in the car and excuse the language, but all you can think of to say is God damn you. Right. Like this is so heinous and so over the top that you can't even emotionally react to it. That's how that felt. Man, I can't even. And so we get to the show I remember Zach and I made a point of being the first ones there at every tooth and nail. Mm-hmm. And on that day, even though we got to the arena at like, we got to the building at like one o'clock and we were still not the first ones there. Jeez. I've experienced this twice in my life. Once on the last day of eighth grade, when we were all going off to separate high schools mm-hmm. and, and this particular night uh, at empire, nobody wanted to leave each other. Right. Like we all went long in our matches. We all, we all hung around after because we, we didn't want to leave. We didn't want it to be over. 
I can just, I remember getting there and I'm like, why are we all here so early? Do, do we really love this this much? Yeah, we do. We actually do. We screened the video that I made for all the boys way before fans got there. Everybody cried. It was, it was neat because I got to, I got to tell everybody before the video, I, I got to stand up on, I got to stand on the stage and tell all the workers and not just the wrestlers, but you know, our security people were there early and Susan and all the concessions people and everybody's kids. I got to stand on the stage and tell everybody what the place meant to me and how proud I was for what we were able to do at times when we were we were such a low budget promotion that did more with what we had than anybody could have dreamed. Then we go into the show. I remember I looked like a million dollars that night. I got my aunt to do my hair. Nice. She permed it out like twice <laughs> as big as it normally should have been. Oh, beautiful. It was she dyed it purple, so it was purple. It was my mom's favorite color. I mean, there were all sorts of things that we did to the hair. And I go out and it's 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 a fairly straightforward match. It was I think I think six minutes, bell to bell, and then and then the five minute post match. Bane brought a bottle of Yuhu to the ring that Lamar knocked off the turnbuckle and it shattered onto the floor. Uh-oh. So I remember this girl who was about my age in the front row. She kept like pulling me aside, trying to tell me this bottle of Yuhu was broken, and I was like, "Well, I can't just go get somebody during the match." Like I'm. I'm performing here. Um, it'll be a minute. I remember the finish not being the most creative in the world, mm-hmm. which was fine. It didn't need to be. It was Bane went for the, the 619, and I'm, like, clutching Lamar so he doesn't take it, so I take the full hit to the back of the head. Yeah. Knock, knocks me onto the floor. They count the pinfall. Post-match was supposed to be they wake me up to tell me that we've lost, that my hair's being cut. Nobody ever comes, so I have to wake myself up. And they're taking so long that I start trying to run away. Uh, And I know this is going to be so horrible, but the inspiration was the mental image, because there's no video of this. The inspiration was the mental image of Buck Zumhof trying to run away in court when he got convicted. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Which is horrible. (laughs) What he he did is so bad and so heinous. The mental image of him trying to run away is hilarious. Like, he's oh in handcuffs. What's he going to do? <laughs> and he tried to run out of the courtroom. So <laughs> I started trying to run away. And uh, so we did this whole deal where, like, a couple of the baby faces had to carry me back out. We did a raffle to, to cut my hair. And one of the workers' girlfriends won. So she's in the ring, and, and she's like, okay, Lucas, I'm not going to hurt you. But... We don't have scissors. We only could find a pair of roofing shears. That's what was taking so long. Oh, God. So they had to cut the afro out of my head with roofing shears. The pain of this situation, the physical pain made me cry. Good Lord, man. Then the emotional pain of the situation made me really cry. So all there's 450 people in attendance, and they're all thinking this is a work, right? Like... They're laughing. They're they're. Someone was doing a chia pet chant, the ch 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 chia thing. Yeah. Somebody was doing that. Crowd was eating it up, and I'm sitting there in this chair in the middle of the ring, and I'm like, "No, guys, y'all don't understand. I'm really heartbroken here." Then comes the moment where everything gets real. I uh, she lets me go. 
they had cut enough of my hair and it looked it looked so bad. I I fall to my knees and somehow like I, I, I just completely fell face forward, did a face bump. And that's when I just start crying for real. And I, I pound the ring mat a few times. I get out and I try to go find my brother who's shooting video. My brother does not realize I'm not selling. So he's got the camera on me. I can see he's doing a tight shot on my face. There, the, the video of this has never been seen. I don't know what happened to it. I think I broke the camera and corrupted it. I slapped that damn camera out of his hand. Oh, damn. <laughs> I just grabbed my brother and I was like, don't let him see me crying like this. You know? And we, we stood there for what felt like 20 minutes. And him just letting me cry until I was ready to go back through the curtain. And then I get back through the curtain and I cry on Clint for like 10 minutes. And I'm sitting there on the floor and there's a picture somewhere. Bane and I, even though everybody hated the fact that we did this because it goes against kayfabe, but again, we've been closed for six years. Bane comes up after the match. After every match we did together, we would take a selfie. Because I love Bane. He's one of my top five favorite people. He's he's crazy in the best way. Right, right, and, definitely. And um, Bane's like, come, come on now, it's selfie time. So there's a picture of, of me and Bane. He's got his arm around my shoulder. My head, my hair has been mostly sheared away, and you can see a single tear streaming down my face. Oh no! As I'm smiling, I'm like, out of context, this has to look like the strangest picture anybody's ever seen. <laughs> uh... So then I sat there. I put I put earbuds in. And I put on some music to calm down for a minute. The, the song that I put on was uh, Champagne Supernova by Oasis, which was one of my mom's favorite songs. And I'm sitting there trying to calm down, and I'm feeling all sad. And then they do this spot where they break the wall on the other side of the building. Mm-hmm. Because what nobody knew was the wall over by the bathroom, that was a breakaway wall that... The whole time that that Drew and Susan had that building, they were waiting till the last show to break that wall as a stunt for the shock value. And so they did it. And I'm sitting there crying, and I hear the wall break through, and I'm like, oh, my God, they've torn the whole building down, you know? Then we went to IHOP, and then I I went home that next morning, and that was the start of the next transition period in my life. All right, we're going to take a pause there for the week. We're going to have to do a part two on this one because Lucas's story is so extensive. And I'll be honest, I've gone back and forth about whether or not this needed to be one giant episode or if it was best to do it in two parts. But I think this is going to be the perfect way to wrap this first part of the episode up. And we'll bring it back with part two next week as we get into the next phase of his journey. Guys, this was a a really different episode for me because not only am I learning so much more about one of my best friends, but I didn't feel appropriate even trying to interject with a lot of questions here. I felt it better to just kind of sit back and let him tell his story. And that's why it's a little bit quieter on my end, man. This story is so powerful. And the next chapter that you're going to hear next week is going to be even more powerful. So I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So make sure you like subscribe and share Follow us on all social media platforms. Thank you again for listening, and thank you to our sponsors. I know you hear me. If you love anime like I do, I've got a YouTube channel just for you. My voiceover coach, Elise Bowman, is an anime voice actress who interviews her fellow anime voice actors. 
Elise is an actress, TV host, and the voice of Pan on Dragon Ball GT, among other characters. She's got a YouTube channel, Anime Adventures with Elise Bowman, and on there she has over 100 videos where she has interviewed voice actors, Power Rangers, and even a few professional wrestlers, and all that sounds right up my alley. And there's a lot of other people that she's interviewed as she travels the country going to comic cons and different recording studios. Elise also features actors from the entire Dragon Ball franchise, My Hero Academia, Naruto, and so much more. And on top of that, there are exclusive panels that are only available on this channel from events like KameaCon 2, Con Live 2021, and so many more. You've got to check this out. See and hear voice actors behind your favorite characters and from your favorite anime shows. Go to youtube.com slash animeadventures and let me know what you think. Follow her on social at Adventures Anime and at Elise Bowman. She loves chatting with fans of anime. Hey, I know you hear me. And guess what? Elise and I want to hear from you too. Connect with us. <laughs>